0: Good morning again if you have a Bible I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 11 Romans chapter 11 and as many of you know we've been working verse by verse through Romans a few breaks here and there but this morning we begin in verse one all the way to verse 12 All right let's this is the word of God. I asked then, did God reject his people? <laughs> By no means. I am I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain, the elect among them did, but the others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgressions means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Amen. That last sentence is in the emphatic. That's why the exclamation point is there. All right, well, well, this is the word of God, isn't it? So we we bind it to our conscience and we tie it to our hearts. So let's, let's pray, please. Just a couple of lines from a hymn will be our prayer. Open our lips, O Lord, that we will declare your praise forever. Open our lips, O Lord, that we will declare your praise forever. A broken spirit and a contrite heart, these you will not despise. Open our lips, O Lord, that we will declare your praise forever. Father, please hear our prayer for your glory, for the good of others, for our good, and for Jesus' sake. Amen. So one of the last thoughts that I had when I left here Friday, late afternoon, is the world is not falling apart your world is not falling apart. It's all falling together into God's glorious, sovereign plan to save people. So God has always had a plan for your life. It's unfolding now. And the important thing is that you should know that your life is embedded in his plan for everyone else's life. Now, there can't be any doubt about this. And I want you to think of this. There are currently some 8 billion souls on the planet. And the best and brightest say that since Adam and Eve, there's been about 108 billion people alive at one time since Adam and Eve. And every one of those lives is conforming or were conforming to one purpose, namely God's purpose. So Ephesians 1 says it like this, this plan of him, that Him would be God who works out everything, so all things and every word. That's the Greek word there, everything, everyone. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Now, here's the thing. If we struggle with that, let's just think through it. We we usually believe that on an economic level. So we believe that something happens way over there, affects us somehow economically. Yesterday, just by chance, I actually took a picture of it, in the parking lot of Walmart, there was this big... Uh, truck and on the side of the truck, there was a few letters written. I don't understand, but it said from China or China. So I was like, okay, stuff from there getting here, stuff that happens over there anywhere affecting us in some way. So we believe it on an economic level. I'm sure we believe it on a social level. Again, yesterday, sorry, I was listening to this podcast about the Patriots, the football team, and anyway, there's this big game coming up tonight, and one of the guys that were interviewed said that when Tom Brady left the Patriots, Tom Brady, quarterback, left the Patriots football team, he said, my childhood ended that day. Now, all, you know, all he was saying was that happened, and and that affected me in some way. I was watching a documentary on the show Friends a long time ago. And somebody said there, they helped me through a really rough time. I'm going to believe them. I'm not, certainly not judging them. But what basically what they're saying is something happened on a social level way, way over there that affected me here. So if we can believe it on an economic level, we can believe it on some level, on a social level, surely we can be, believe it on a theological level, right? So Romans 8.28 is not just all things in your life work together for your personal good. No, what does it say? All things in your life but all things in life. That's what it's saying, total life. All things in life. So it means everyone and everything work for your good. The bad is still bad, but everything is working for your good, for the Christian. So the notion that an individual uh, individual action might help us to avoid any, you know, oncoming crisis, so that one person in one action can help us avoid some crisis. Some people say that's hopelessly naive. The Bible would say not so fast. Not so fast. One person's life matters that much. So again, take these billions of lives, okay, and then, and then all the details of our life, all the preferences that we have, the bents that we have, the inclinations that we have, the race, our race, lay them all side by side. Every one of those are precious to God, right? So you know your life is precious to God. I hope you do. And I hope you know that everybody else's life is precious to God. And God takes all those billions of souls and works out his eternal purpose, So again, the world is not falling apart. Your world is not falling apart. It's all falling together into God's glorious, sovereign plan to save. And there are few messages in the Bible which are clearer and more repeated than at least this. God is sovereign, and God can be trusted. He's sovereign, and he can be trusted. And here in chapter 11 is this if you would, this incredible plan. Now, if your Bible's open, you'll see this. Right off the bat, Paul lays out his argument like he's been doing a lot in Romans with a question. Verse one, I asked then, did God reject his people? And this is like ethnic Israel. Did God reject the Jewish nation, which was set apart by God, which was established as a theocracy, that, that God would ultimately be their king? They were given a mandate, they were given promises by God, and they were given a destiny. A peculiar people. God said things to them that that he didn't say to anyone else. So the question, did God reject his people? And his answer is written in the emphatic. It's by no means. It's it's the same thing in Romans 6. He says it three times. If you're like, are you kidding me? God rejecting his people? No way. May it never be. Now, you're going to have to remember that what's driving this whole section, which began in chapter 9, is the question, why are there so few Jewish people being converted? And so it's a question out of concern for the Jewish people, but it's also a question of concern for the Gentiles. Now, I need you to think with me. The Gentiles at this time, they have no history like God's people did, not like the Jewish people. So they're hearing all these things about Jesus and the gospel, and surely they're like, okay, how can I know that justification is really real? Adoption, being adopted by God. How can I know that's real? Atonement. Christ satisfying uh, God's wrath by his death on the cross. How do I know that's real? Imputed righteousness. Is that a real thing? Can you go walk around town telling people that you have the very righteousness of God in you by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Eternal life, is that real? So that's some of what they were facing. And at the end of chapter 10, do you see it there? Paul says, God has held out his hand all day long to a disobedient and obstinate people. And that's referring to the Jewish people. So they've rejected God time and time again. Hence, Paul asked the question, which is just, just hanging out there, right? It's, it's a very pastoral thing to do. Everybody's probably thinking it. But he asked the question again. Verse 1, these people who've rejected God, I ask the question, has God rejected Them. Now again, think like a Gentile and think like a person who's come from a pagan background. I mean, out of that pagan culture, the pagan gods had to be appeased by human effort and human works and human sacrifice, and it was constant. There was no letting up. And if they were going to get what they needed from the gods, small g, then they were going to have to keep doing stuff. And usually it went like this if you don't do for us pagan gods say then we won't do for you so the gentiles excuse me had to do 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 all the time a lot of do do and then if they did the do then their god would bless 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 okay so bless their lives bless their kids bless their jobs their business their health their wealth etc cetera, etc cetera. so that kind of god would easily turn his back on a people if those people turned their back on him. And, you know, I have to say this. I would be dishonest if, you know, if I didn't admit there are times that I relate to God to my shame just like he's a pagan God. Here's this, God. Please don't let this happen. Here's this, God. Please don't let this happen. Hence, the question, is God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is he like that? Does he reject people who reject him? That's the question. Three points to try to answer it. Number one, rejection. Did God reject his people? Again, verse 1b, Paul gives four answers. Here's the first one. And Paul begins with himself. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, look at me. I, I am Jewish. In fact, I have a high holy pedigree, Paul would say. But I was a wreck. I was out of my mind. I hated Christ. I, and now I belong to Christ. Look at me. You remember in Acts chapter 26, Paul is giving his testimony to King Agrippa. And he says things like, I hated Christians with berserker rage. <laughs> he said, God didn't give up on me. Hi, I'm Jewish, and he took me, and now he's actually using me in his work to save the world. You see? And of course, what is true of Paul as the Jew is true for everyone else, Jew or Gentile. I mean, a person's background may be one of radical, violent disobedience, terrible deeds, you know, broken home, broken life, broken mind, marriage, mon- you know, monster addictions. Or just some kind of like cavalier attitude towards everyone and everything, including God. It doesn't matter. God will not reject them. I mean, people aren't a data point. People are not a statistic to God. God doesn't, you know, do analytics. God is the hound of heaven. They are a person. They are made in his image. They are a soul. They are precious to him. Just like those, chapter 10, verse 21, you see, those disobedient, stubborn Jewish people who God has not rejected. So Paul's first answer to why did God not reject his people is like, Paul's like, take a look at me. I'm a personal example. Second reason, verse 2, is take a look at God. You see it? God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Like, uh uh-oh, foreknew. Here we are again. I thought we left that word in chapter 9, but there it is again. Pro-ganosko in the Greek. Before they knew about God, God knew all about them. And so that word, by the way, is used for intimacy, like relational intimacy. To know a person in the fullest detail that you can know them. And it's really beautiful if you think about it. I think I, I think what I did was I compared it to to the the, the, the pre birth of your child, of a child, or the and the birth of a child. So the pre birth, I mean, I'm sure we all did this. Those of us had the privilege of having kids. We think about what they're going to be like, and we start thinking about them. What will they look like? What will they be like? What will they like? And then they come into the world and, you know, I did this. You study their arms and their face and their, you know, their ears and you look behind their toes and, and the thing, And I could tell you things about Jared that would embarrass him, my son, Jared. But you want to know all about them. But with God, it's infinitely better. He knew them before there was an actual flesh and blood them to know and to love. Before they did anything good or bad, chapter 9, verse 11, he had chosen them. The point is, in God foreknowing his people, election is before conception. Again, election is before conception. Because we learn that in chapter 9, God never learned or discovered anything about anyone. God is all-knowing. He is omniscient. So he never looked into time to learn anything about anyone and then decided what he learned on for them. No, he already knows all things in all times, even before time became time for us or becomes time for us. Therefore, in foreknowledge, he's not learning new, something new about his chosen people and then making a decision based on what he learned. No, remember Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 4, the word of the Lord came to me before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I set you apart to be a prophet to the nations. You see, all of that is to say, because God foreknew, predetermined before the foundation of the earth to to set his special love on his chosen people forever, he can never and he will never reject Israel. Because if he did that, then that would invalidate his promise God would be seen as unfaithful. He wouldn't be sovereign. His integrity would be at odds. He'd look more like a pagan God than the almighty God. And his word and his love would be compromised. So I want you to think of this. This, this gave me a lot of pleasure to write. From the day that God called Abraham until the day of Christ's return, there has not been... And there will never be a time on this earth where they will not be believing Jewish people. That's a beautiful thing. Question, did God reject his people? Answer, Paul says, take a look at me. I'm living proof. Take a look at God. He's the God of all grace. He's sovereign. Thirdly, you see it in the second part of verse two. He says, now take a look at your Bibles. And once again, Paul takes us back to the Old Testament, to that Old Testament story, 1 Kings 19. And all he's going to do here is further underpin God's foreknowledge and his election to his people, right? So don't you know what Scripture says? This is i quoting now there in verse 2 in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. Okay, just briefly, just a little bit of context. So the cry, that cry from Elijah came during the worst or one of the worst periods of apostasy in Jewish history from the Old Testament. So when Elijah said those words that Paul just wrote, Ahab was king, and he ruled with his partner Jezebel. And, and Jezebel was a priestess of the cult of Baal, and she was awful. Like she was Cruella Awful. All right, so just a side note, I wanted to say, how awful was she? So I just Googled this. I Googled how many, how many babies were named Jezebel in any particular year. Just get this in your head. There were roughly 70 million baby girls born in the world in 2019. Of those 70 million, 3,396 named their daughters Jezebel i just like, okay, so that means her, her name has something to it, some kind of stigma. I was like, okay, that's kind of creepy, and I know it, but I was just curious. Sorry. And then I was thinking that there was going to be a lady named Jezebel today, and she was going to say, what's her problem? I'm like, you know what? I shouldn't have done it. I'm sorry. It was a weak moment. I was a caribou. My mind was wondering, okay. But anyway, the point is, she was bad, and she influenced Ahab in an awful way. So all of a sudden, these pagan gods were introduced into the temple of God. And pagan worship was introduced and allowed. And systematically, all the high places were being torn down. All the temple worship that used to center on God centered on all kinds of of Baal images and Baal himself. Now, I I don't know if you know this, but just think about that. There's God, and he's taken out of his own temple, replaced with all these other gods, and the people of God are worshiping those other gods. So, at the beginning of this semester... At Harvard University, they, they presented a new chaplain to the school. And the new chaplain is an atheist. His name is Greg Epstein. He, he wrote the book, Good Without God. And he began his chaplaincy. Now, just think about that. There's something difficult to understand about that. An atheist is a chaplain over all the bits and pieces of different faiths that are there. Okay? So... In God's house, there's all these other gods being worshipped, and not Yahweh, not the God and father of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. All right. And so this persecution breaks out. And what followed was all this terrible things happening to, to the Jewish people. And it was essentially, okay, you need to pick. You pick God or you pick Baal. And then remember, they encounter, uh, Elijah gets all the priests together and says, all right, let's have this showdown, all right? So you go to Mount, the Mount Carmel, and let's go this, and, and have these uh, altar, and let the fire come down and consume, and if your God does it, okay, he's God, and if my God does it, okay, he's God. And so the, the pagan gods go out at, you know, the story, and they cry and cry, and no fire from heaven. Uh, Elijah mocks them. And they cry even more. They go through all their gyrations and cut themselves and all that kind of stuff. Nothing. And then Elijah says, Okay, my turn. And so he douses the uh, sacrifice with more water and he prays to the one true and living God. And fire comes from heaven and consumes the altar. Bam. Okay, but there's more to the story. Elijah's exhausted. The, the, the high victory was way too high for him. It, it's a very human thing. It happens to all of us. And so Jezebel threatens him. He buckles. And, you know, for a long time, all he knew was daily persecution and daily threats. We're going to have your head, Elijah. And he tells God, remember, I can't do this anymore. Nobody cares. I'm the only one. People are all rushing to the pagan uh, shrines, they're killing your prophets, and I'm the only one left. Now that is the context where Paul quotes from, which should tell us something of why this particular Old Testament example was chosen under God by Paul. Most of the people of God at the time of Elijah were apostate, and what that means is there was a time when they professed faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but now they did not. They denied everything about God. They said they they did believe at one time, but now they don't. And for Elijah, it would seem like all hope is gone. You get just it's just nothing's gonna happen good. It's the same way for the church in Rome. God's own chosen people have denied the natural and truthful implications of their Old Testament. They have denied the gospel. They denied the plan, which was always part of God's plan, way back in Genesis. And it would, again, they're apostate. And it would seem like all hope is gone. But here's the thing. In the midst of all that terrible situation, look at your Bibles. Do you see what God says to Elijah? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So you see, in that time, the world's not falling apart. In Romans' time, and this time, the world's not falling apart. In our time, the world's not falling apart. It's falling into God's sovereign plan. And so Paul, under the inspiration of the same God who said what he said to Elijah, said, do you see it there? So too, at the present time, verse 5, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen, elected by grace. Okay? so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen, elected by grace. Now, there's two important things which we need to take note of here. First, in 1 Kings 19, there is no mention of a remnant chosen by God's grace. It simply says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And why I tell you that is just like I've told you last week, in every case in the New Testament, the New Testament gives us the fullest, deepest, truest, final meaning on what is exactly happening in that Old Testament story. And that's what we have here in verse 5. This is the truest, deepest, fullest Final meeting of what is happening there. The grace of God, way back in 1 Kings 19. For those of you who think the God of the Bible in the Old Testament was not a God of grace, sure he was. Way back in that story, he pours out his grace. So once again, we we're confronted with redemptive history, remember? What we know about God in the Bible, starting from Genesis on, Does it, we don't know everything. Okay, As you read it, you don't know everything. They did not know everything. History unfolds. And it finds its completion in Jesus Christ. So in the person of Jesus Christ, we know everything about God that God wants us to know. Remember, Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father. And again, Jesus said the whole Old Testament, John 5, is all about me. Now, all of that is to say that unequivocally, it was the grace of God and not the works of those 7,000 people which caused God to choose his remnant. That's the first thing. That's driving us. Grace. The second thing, it was almost like God was saying, now, Elijah, I know it feels like all hope is gone. And for the church in Rome, I know it feels like all hope is gone. I mean, no Jewish person is becoming a Christian. But it's not. All hope is not gone. Things are not falling apart. My plan and my purpose is being worked out. Verse 5, again, so too, or in the same way back then, or as it was then, In the Greek, it reads, thus, then, also, now. So, too, at this present time, verse 5, there is a remnant of my chosen, elected people by grace. Now, the good news is, is that there has always been, in Israel, a faithful remnant, if you would, a spiritual Israel within Israel, not because of Israel, but because of God, because of God's grace. And by golly, it's the same now. I mean, those of you, those of us who go out and tell people about Jesus, we know it's sometimes, it is a hard sell. It wears on your body and it wears on your mind. And we might be thinking, there's just no way that anybody's going to come to Jesus. I go out there and I say something and I get nothing. You know what God would say to us? (laughs) Keep at it. My plan is still unfolding. There are per people out there worth saving because I had made it so. Again, there are people out there worth saving because I had made it so. All right, so Paul's question, has God rejected his people? Answer, no. Paul says, take a look at me, take a look at God, take a look at your Bible. Now, again, take a look at God's grace. I mean, we just have to say it. It all threads together in one seamless nine, a revenant chosen by grace. Verse 5, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were grace... If it were, grace would no longer be grace, right? In other words, because God chose them by grace, there's always going to be a faithful remnant. Now, this is what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, you know, that God saw all these good, decent people, you know, and because they were good, decent people, God says, that's my remnant. Doesn't work like that. That's not grace. God's saying, I'm getting those 7,000 and whatever future number of the Jews, it's because of me. It's because of God and not their works. I'm going to preserve the remnant. I have reserved for myself 7,000 within that godless nation, remember? So what I want you to know, it doesn't mean that the 7,000 were like high holy people. You know, they weren't walking around doing their prayers all the time and, and saying, you know what, that rascal Jezebel, let's form a committee and let's get rid of her. Let's stand up and fight her. That's, no, that's not what was happening. The 7,000 were chosen by grace. So they could have been in the court of Jezebel and Ahab. They could have come out of some dark places. Some from areas and some from backgrounds. We would have never chosen ourselves. You know what? Just as an aside, as I think about it now, I can remember the very first person that I shared Jesus Christ to as an adult. Okay, not as a kid, but as an adult. Do you know what they said to me? They said, why are you talking to me? You don't, Do you know who I am and what I've done? <laughs> Hello, I wanted to say, do you know who I am and what I've done? I mean, come on, we can go there all day. The point is, God will preserve his elect. At the present time, he will preserve his church, a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, this is the Bible, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So remember, the church of Jesus Christ belongs to Jesus Christ. It's his church. We are his bride. And his bride has been given to the Son by the Father. Therefore, this tells me we are to look for, and I'll just keep this in your head, we are to look for a day where there will be an incredible, counterintuitive, unexpected response to the gospel by the Jewish people. Large amounts of Jewish people. Okay? Got that? And what is true for the Jewish people is, was, and will be true for the Gentile people. So that means there will be a moment when, when there will be an incredible, counterintuitive, unexpected response to the gospel from somebody that you share the gospel with. It, will, it is bound to happen. It will happen. And we're going to know that it's all God's work. So that God can get all the glory. That's actually one of my 40 days of prayer. I've been praying. An incredible, counterintuitive, unexpected movement of the gospel in our community large numbers of people, so that when it happens, everybody's like, that's God. (laughs) And God will be glorified. You see, his people will not fail because God never fails his people. So in my normal reading uh, this past week, excuse me, two weeks ago, I was reading about the church in Afghanistan in light of all the stuff that's been happening there. And I read about this report where an American, uh, when the American withdrawal happened, when it was at its highest point and the Afghan government was just crumbling, the pastor says this, as we sang the final verse of our hymn, a brother came and whispered in my ear, Eshar Gandhi, Afghan's president, just resigned. The, The Taliban are now in control. And then the pastor says, we kept singing. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Loved ones, tell me how anyone in human flesh, I don't care who they are, tell me how anyone in human flesh could sing that song in that context without the grace of God? Tell me. If you earn it, it's not grace. If you deserve it, it's not grace. If you merit it, it is not grace. Grace, by definition, is unearned, unmerited, undeserved. And if it is earned, and if it is deserved, and it is merited, then it's not grace. That's number one. Rejection, that's impossible. Look at Paul. Look at God. Look at your Bible. Look at grace. Second one, and we'll be very brief here. Election, verse 7. What then? What the people of Israel, that would begin to be ethnic Israel, sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And you see what Paul is going to do here. He's going to compare election in salvation and works-based salvation. Okay? Look at your Bible. The people of Israel sought so earnestly. Epi is, is part of the word. And epi is like turbo power. So they were so intense. They were so focused. They were giving all their human effort into making themselves right by God. Hyper, hyper. But what does Paul say? They did not obtain it. And we know, if you look at your Bible, chapter 10, verse 3, remember? tells us they tried to establish their own righteousness by their hyper, turbo efforts of works. And you see, the dirty little secret is, in reality, they created another gospel, or tried to, and their gospel said it was all on you. It's all on you. You keep at it, and you work yourself to the bone. You know, work your fingers to the bone. What do you get? They would say, salvation? Nope. You just get bony fingers. Righteousness is a gift from God through the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And remember verse 4 of chapter 10, Christ is the fulfillment of the law so that there may be righteousness for all who, and there's that wonderful word, believe. For all who believe. And many Jewish people did not believe that Christ's righteousness was good enough and right enough for God. So again, Paul says they vigorously sought to obtain it by their own works, achieve for themselves their own righteousness, a self-salvation, and Paul says they didn't get it even though they tried to work so hard for it. And then look what this says, verse 7. But others there were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear, to this very day. So those that were working for their salvation, they were blind already, and God just gave them over to their blindness. Blindness was the sentence for their sin. There's a little phrase that I keep in my head often. There are none so blind that will not see. That's kind of sort of what is happening here. They were, they were blind and they wouldn't see. They, they did not want to see God as he is in his justice and as he is in his goodness. And so they were apostate. They had this other God rolling around in their head that needed them to do, do, do for him to give, give, give. Verse 9, it gets worse. May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. That's, That's a fitting punishment Now listen carefully for the proud. You see, because by and large, proud people are always under the impression that they see everything perfectly clear and thus they look at the world, not in love like God does, but in judgment. Not in love, but in judgment. And the irony here is that the proud Jewish person who sees Jesus not as God's son and not as God's savior and not as their only hope in life and death, they are being judged by God. And God's judgment there is is the consequence of their pride. It's retributive is the word. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. And loved ones, that can happen to anyone today. Now, Now, bear with me. A person can be trying so hard desperately, earnestly hard to please and serve God that they become so vigorous and resist the idea of grace. No, how? Well, you can conclude really easily that God is holy and he's majestic and that he cannot abide in evil. I mean, that is gospel truth. And so you could conclude that you must uh, cleanse yourself and you must purify yourself in your heart to approach him. So, you got to do all the work and you go at it and you work, 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 and you don't do this and you don't watch that and you don't listen to this and all those things. And then you hear of this idea that forgiveness is free and it's total. You would think that dishonors a holy God. So, imagine a person says, just like the prodigal son story, a convicted murderer, a creepy neighbor can just say, I'm sorry and they are flooded with all the righteousness of Christ, and they can relate to God forever and ever, world without end, through his righteousness? The Bible says yes. And the person goes, but I've been working you know, hard to be holy for years and years and years and years. That does not seem right to me. That seems insulting to the God of the Bible. But it's not. It is the God of the Bible. It's the greatness of his grace. And if you think about it, there are very sincere Jews and very sincere Muslims and very sincere Hindus that are misguided in the gospel because it seems to weaken the need for moral effort. I had a good friend who was a Hindu and he would tell me, Joe, Joe, we're not doing enough as a church. We need to do more. People are this way and people are that way. And I would tell him the gospel. He goes, no, more, 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 a gospel. No, more, more. Now he became converted and he's a gospel man. It could happen to them. It can happen to a church as well. It can happen to a church where they're only motivated by fear and guilt and the need of approval and anger. And they think, God, you know, I've got to do for God if God's going to do for me. And they would not agree with Paul who said this in Philippians, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be obtained by being good, by keeping the law, then Christ died for nothing. See, Second point, election. So rejection, no. Election, yes. Final expansion, verse 11. We're going to be seconds here. Again, I ask, did they stumble us to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Their transgression means riches for the world. Now, remember what I said in the beginning of the sermon, in the middle of the sermon, uh, God's plan for your life is intertwined with his plan for everyone else, that the world is not falling apart, that it's falling according to God's sovereign plan. What Paul is just telling us, Israel's stumbling was the pretext which led to the conversion of Gentiles, which means because that happened, all of you that are here that are in Christ, it's part of the reason why you're in Christ. When they did what they did, God did what he did, and look at us here. Riches for the world. That's what Paul says. Riches for you and I in Christ. So God is not finished with the Jewish people. God is not finished with the world The world is not falling apart. It's falling into God's sovereign plan. Three things quickly and we're done. Number one, do you see how much God despises works as a means to appease him, to win him over, to calm him down, as it were? 16 times, from 9-1 all the way to the part that we ended, 16 times God says no, works, no, works, no, grace, yes. God despises works as a way to get to him. Second, who is beyond God's reach? Think, no one. No one is beyond God's reach. Third, God's plan is, it means the down, dark, and difficult times that we have individually or globally or nationally, those dark, down, and difficult times, that's part of his plan to save the world. So you're not just an anybody because you have been welcomed by grace into God's grand and redemptive story. That's who you are. The most beautiful story ever. You are a part of. Throw yourself into that truth. You're, you're not just an anybody because God has shed his love on you, adopted you into his family, and named you one of his children because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that means this, and I'll close with this one life, one life in this room has measureless possibility for good. And I hope you believe that, because I believe it. I believe it with all my heart. Let's pray as we prepare for communion. And those who will be serving, if you could just meet me down at the table, that would be wonderful. Now, as we prepare communion, remember this table is set up for, for Christians, people who know that the meal's not for perfect people, but people who have been forgiven, people who have been made perfect only by faith in Christ. So, Jesus welcomes you even now. If you're ready to say yes to Him and you've never said yes to Him before, now is a wonderful time to say yes. You've heard the gospel in a million different ways this morning. And I would plead with you to say yes. Let's pray. Father, from the bottom of our hearts, we love how you love us. You give us peace and you give us security and a felt sense of love and joy to which, when we trace the roots back, it's not to our obedience but your grace and your son and our Savior's righteousness. And we admit, God, that we too often in our human relationships, we find the center in performance, in in works or, or merit, and we know that can be an unbearable way to live, cruel to live that way with other brothers and sisters. So, Jesus, thank you for disarming the powers of hell and the wrath of God, and dealing decisively once and for all, the penalty, the power, and the burden of our sins, sins of which we ask for forgiveness now. Thank you at the cross. When you said it was finished, you meant it. And all of of us in this room that belong to you, we believe that. We believe that our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. So, Father, may this communion table, the the bread and the juice, body and blood, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, fixed on cross, fixed on his perfection, and live in wonder and deep joy of your grace in Christ to us. Amen. Amen.